0: friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as so we continue our series through the life and ministry of King David. Like I said last week, we're kind of entering our final approach in this series through David's life, including this week. We have three more weeks, and then we're going to shift to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha and witness more of Christ in the Old Testament. This morning, our scripture reading is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 21. Remember, beloved, remember, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman, she was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah, he slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David about this, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, why have you not come, sorry, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? No, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him. And he ate, Uriah ate in David's presence and drank, so that David made Uriah drunk. And in the evening, Uriah went to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but Uriah did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite, he also died." Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city and fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the, from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, well, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, I've told you before that my wife is, a, is an Anglophile. And a few months ago, she introduced me to a new show, wait for it, Great Canal Journeys, okay? Great Canal Journeys. It is absolutely riveting. Now, maybe it's not riveting, okay? But when you're over 50, it's very exciting. The show features a married couple and their various canal trips that they take in their long, skinny, narrow canal boats all throughout Great Britain and the British Isles. They are British actors, and their names are Timothy West and Prunella Scales, if you are familiar with those actors. Um, My favorite episode is called The Caledonian. Does anybody know what Caledonia is, what that name is? Caledonia, I would think the bird songs would know what this is. At any rate, Caledonia is what the Romans used to call Scotland, okay? And so my favorite episode is called The Caledonian, where Tim and Prue, I like to call her Prue, uh, crossed through the Scottish highlands, and they stopped at the ruins, these gorgeous ruins of Urquhart Castle. Urquhart Castle was originally constructed and built in 1230 AD and became one of the most important castles in all of the Scottish Highlands. It was perhaps most famous for its connection to William Wallace, a.k.a. Braveheart, okay, and Robert the Bruce, who claimed it for Scotland in 1308 during the Wars of Independence. So it's, it's situated on a prominence. It's situated on this gorgeous bluff. It overlooks Loch Ness. It was almost an impregnable Scottish fortress for over 500 years. But sadly now, it's just a vestige of its former self. It lay in ruins. And this once magnificent castle that now lays in ruins is a cautionary tale that all great clans and all great dynasties and all wonderful houses come to an end. And that's what we have before us this morning, a cautionary tale that marks the beginning of the end of the house of David. The beginning of the end of David's house begins in our passage today. You may say to yourself, how can this possibly be? Okay, for week after week, we saw him running from Saul, barely escaping with his life. Finally, we saw Saul and Jonathan die. David rises to prominence. He establishes the kingdom. Last week, okay, when he invites Mephibosheth, the grandson of his great enemy Saul, we saw the greatest act of magnanimity and graciousness perhaps ever In Old Testament Israel, when David invited Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, to sit at his table, to act like one of his very own sons, David had established himself as the king of a unified Israel. He had expanded the borders of Israel to unprecedented places. He was at the height of his power and glory. And immediately on the heels of that, We've got this. Sadly, we're going to see it doesn't take much to fall headlong into sin, and this is a cautionary tale. Look at verse 1. This is one of, the, one of the most interesting passages in the Old Testament. Verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle or to war, David sent Joab, Joab was the commander of David's army, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, David remained at Jerusalem. Now that is a key indicator on the part of a narrator that Houston, we've got a problem. If you remember back to last week, Chris did a wonderful job explaining to us Jonah chapter three and in Jonah chapter three, Jonah actually shows up before the Ninevites, and he says to the Ninevites, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be no more. And what do the Ninevites do, this, these great Assyrians? How do the Ninevites respond? Even if you weren't there on Wednesday, you should know. The Ninevites repented. They repented from the evil that they had done, and Chris posed to us the question, why in the world... With these great Assyrians, why in the world would these wicked Ninevites have listened to the warning of an obscure Hebrew prophet? Like, why wouldn't they have just strung him up? Why did the Assyrians, why did the Ninevites give Jonah the time of day? Well, you know I love history. I love charts. I love maps. Chris came loaded for bear last Wednesday night. I think he was kind of jockeying for a raise maybe or something like that. (laughs) A lot of good maps, a lot of ancient tablets, very helpful, very illuminating. Well, archaeologists have actually found lists of Assyrian kings that go back to Jonah's day. Remarkable clay tablet reliefs that describe what each of these Assyrian kings did. And when times were good, okay, on these tablets, it would say, this Assyrian king did this, did that, led this successful campaign year after year after year. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, after 41 years of successful campaigns, it said, this Assyrian king, he stayed in the land. And the year that he stayed in the land, a number of remarkably difficult things had happened during that time. A king never stayed in the land. When the king stays in the land, it shows there's a problem, okay? And that's what we see in our passage this morning. What does the text say? The narrator gives us a time stamp. The narrator tells us that it's springtime in Israel. And what does the narrator further tell us about springtime in Israel? What does that mean for the king? That's when kings would go off to war. It would make sense. Winter is the rainy season. No one was going to go out and attempt to expand their kingdom during the late fall and the winter. The kings would go out in the springtime. David was at the height of his power. He was expanding the borders of Israel. And yet here, the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. Extremely unusual. He should have been out with his men. Look at verse 2. Well, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. What does that mean? The Hebrew word for couch is also the same exact word as the Hebrew word for bed. So David's been spending all afternoon in bed, lounging in his bed, taking an extended nap. His men, Joab, they're off to war trying to deal with the Ammonites. David is luxuriating in the temple palace, sleeping the day away. This does not seem like the David we've come to know and love, do you think? Something's happened to David. Wonder what it is. Happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the woo, roof a woman bathing, and the woman, she was very beautiful. Remember, David should not have been in this position to begin with. If he was where he needed to be, he would not have been in position to do this. As parents know about their children, idle hands are what? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. It doesn't just go for children. It goes for adults too. David is idle. He's not at his post. He has more time on his hands than is healthy. And so he goes up to his rooftop and that's where you would go. In the ancient Near East, in the springtime, when it was hot, there were breezes on the top of your roof. And David had the highest roof of any of the roofs in Jerusalem. The royal palace was at the top of Jerusalem, and from his royal roof, he could see the roofs of all of the houses around him. And so he sees Bathsheba, who's bathing on her roof. I think no one else could see Bathsheba. But David could, and that's where the trouble begins, or actually the trouble started before that. But that's what put David in position to see Bathsheba. So question for you, how did David go from showing all of this remarkable character, this magnanimity to Mephibosheth, this graciousness, this kindness, inviting an enemy eat at the king's table he invites or he adopts Mephibosheth into his house how did we go from there in just a short time to here do you have any ideas if you had to speculate what do you think it was that caused this change in David for his heart to begin to grow cold and apathetic complacent and indifferent I think we have a clue Later in David's life, he writes Psalm 30. And in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 30, David writes the following. David writes, when I felt secure, in other words, when I felt self-confident, when I felt secure, I said in my heart, I will never be shaken. In other words, when I felt self-assured, when I felt confident, okay, confident, In my heart, I felt that nothing could stop me. David goes on to say, but when you hid yourself, I was dismayed. In other words, just like all of us, I think David's accomplishments, his power, and his position had started to go to his head. He was so powerful, so capable, that he didn't need to go out with his men to war. He could send Joab, in fact, maybe going out to war, in his mind at this point might have been beneath him. Okay? When I felt secure, when I felt self-confident, I felt that nothing could stop me. In other words, David had grown to believe he was kind of bulletproof. Feelings of pride and too much confidence in self can be extremely dangerous that's not just true of David that is true of you and me friends this is a cautionary tale if this could happen to David this can happen to any one of us in this room none of us are beyond this kind of pattern going on in our own lives and we can see how one sin can often lead to another. In other words, oftentimes we don't sin in just compartmentalized ways. Okay, we don't sin in silos. Okay. One sin often leads to another sin, which leads to another sin. It was the pride it was the sin of pride and complacency and presumption that led to apathy and idleness, which led to lust, which leads to other things. It can have a domino effect. And I wish I could say it stopped here. Tragically, it did not. Let's look at verse 3. Now, this is a biggie. This is a huge turning point. Verse 3. David sent, okay, and actually did what? He inquired about the woman. So it, it went from just going on in his heart and his mind until now David is actually taking action. Friends, this is a cautionary tale. When your sin goes from your heart and you find yourself now taking action, okay, and following up on that sin, that's a very dangerous place to be. David sent and inquired about the woman. I wonder if he realized that things were getting out of control here. I wonder if he wondered, you know, am I really doing this? And someone told him, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, friends, regardless of whatever has happened to this point, when he got wind that Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, that should have immediately brought him back to his senses. Do you understand why? Uriah wasn't just any Joe Schmo in Israel. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, the Bible says. David's mighty men, it's like the king's guard. David's mighty men are the most elite, qualified, and, uh, you know, capable troops in all of Israel. They are the most loyal to call Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men, would have meant that Eliam lived, lived to serve David. Eliam, I'm sorry, Uriah the Hittite lived to risk his life for David. We also know that Bathsheba's father was Eliam. We know from the Bible, Eliam was another of David's mighty men. Okay, so Bathsheba's husband's a mighty man part of David's, you know, most intimate, loyal guards, and then her father is as well. We also know from the Bible, this is amazing, that Bathsheba's grandfather is one of David's most loyal advisors. We know from the Bible that Bathsheba's grandfather is named Ahithophel. Ahithophel, years later, when there's an insurrection, takes the side of David's adversary. So even though David ultimately gets forgiven and restored, there was a ripple effect of his sin that was borne out years later. So do you get the sense of how personal this is? David's not about to just ruin the family life of strangers. He's about to destroy the lives of his most personal, trusted Friends and advisors. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. If we could read Hebrew, we would see that the narrator, he's quickening the pace now, okay? The verbs, they stack up on top of each other, one after the other, after the other in rapid succession. It's picking up speed now. So David, he sent messengers and he took her. He sent. He took she came to him. He lay with her. The narrator gives an editorial note. She had, now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. In other words, he's saying she had just finished her monthly cycle. Why did the narrator tell us that? To let us know that this child could only be David's child. David was solely responsible for this. Then she, Bathsheba, returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Even here, friends, David could have stopped. He could have taken responsibility. It would have been very difficult, of course, but the damage would have stopped. Restoration, reconciliation could have happened. I can remember a number of years ago that there was, I may have mentioned this before, a case of plagiarism in our presbytery many, many years ago. I was on the committee that was helping to kind of investigate it and look into it. And if the minister, if the minister would have just come clean and acknowledged what he had done, it would have been hard, there would have been some discipline, but he would have been forgiven and restored and he could have continued happily in his office but he did not do that he lied and he lied and he lied and he covered it up and that became known and tragically he was ultimately deposed from office David had an opportunity here to repent and receive forgiveness and reconciliation, but in verses 6 through 8, David is committed to a cover-up. And this is what sin does as it escalates and grows. Verses 6 through 8, David comes up with this elaborate cover-up plan. David sent word to Joab. Well, even before we get this, why is David doing this? David is trying to protect his throne. Was it David's throne to begin with? You know, was was David's family originally on the throne in Israel? Where was David when Samuel comes and anoints David for office? David is in the field with the sheep. David is the ultimate nobody. When Samuel asks Jesse to invite this last, most unlikely son, and Samuel anoints David. David occupies the office solely because of God's grace and mercy, but over the years, I guess, he felt like it was his by divine right, and he was doing everything he could to protect it and cover it up, and that's what you and I do all the time maybe in less flagrant ways, maybe in less dramatic ways, but in ways similar nonetheless. So David, he sent word to Joab, send me or bring me back from the front lines, Uriah the Hittite. I want Uriah back here in Jerusalem. And Joab sent for Uriah and brought him to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And so David asked Joab to send Uriah back under the pretense that David wants an update from the front lines. Okay, that's why Uriah thinks he's being brought back. In verse eight, we find out more about the story. David then said to Uriah, Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out. Of the king's house. Now, notice this next little detail from the narrator. And there followed him a present from the king. Okay, now this phrase, go down to your house and wash your feet, was kind of a euphemism or some kind of colloquial expression for go down to your house and get very comfortable. In other words, go down to your house, relax, enjoy relations with your wife. Take advantage of this break. What does David send to make sure the dinner is very romantic between Uriah and Bathsheba? It says he sends a present at the end of verse 8. He sends tries to send Uriah home, and there followed him a present from the king, maybe a very nice bottle of wine to help the couple get in the mood. Obviously, what is he hoping for? He's hoping that David and Bathsheba... I'm sorry, he's hoping that Uriah and Bathsheba would have relations and that the child could be ascribed to that union. What's interesting, though, is scholars look at this a number of ways. Why does, in terms of the narrator describes Uriah, he keeps qualifying and specifying who Uriah is. Uriah what? Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the hittite which probably means that uriah and his family has converted to Judaism that he has converted to being a follower of Yahweh and so here we have uriah the hittite acting more righteously than david the king of israel i think there's irony there there's more dark irony to come verses 9 through 11 But Uriah, he's a righteous man. He won't do it. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, who's the they? David has spies checking on Uriah. When they told David that Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, look, dude, what's going on? Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? What gives, Uriah? Uriah said to David, boy, this should be convicting to David. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. In other words, they're in tents. They're in these army tents in the open field, extremely uncomfortable. And my Lord Joab And the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, David, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Here we have Uriah saying no to maybe the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he said as, you know, that that famous phrase, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing, which should have been jarring to David. It should have given David yet another chance to repent and make things right. I can remember over 20 years ago when I used to be on staff at Park City's Presbyterian Church. Over 20 years ago, I was an assistant minister I had been assisting in the service that day after the service a couple comes up to me I could see that um, something very serious was going on they wanted to talk about something significant they said can we go somewhere private and talk and so I found a room met with the couple and one of the spouses said on a weekend work trip I committed an indiscretion I was unfaithful to my spouse and I am here to let them know and I will accept whatever is going to happen to me the spouse was broken and you could see it in the eyes of the spouse true repentance true ownership I had the privilege of meeting with them over the course of probably the next seven or eight months and I had the privilege of helping them renew their vows over outside at Turtle Creek, and they are still married to this day because one of the spouses felt conviction and felt ownership and trusted in the Lord enough to confess and accept whenever, and their story was the story of rescue and redemption. Even now, David has the opportunity to make things right, but he won't. And I'll tell you this, friends, it's never, ever too late. It's never, ever too late to confess your sins and to come clean and to make things right and to cast your life on the mercy of the Lord. It's never too late to do such a thing. Or verses 12 through 14, David said to Uriah, remain here today. Also, and tomorrow, I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him, Uriah, drunk. And in the evening, he, Uriah, went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he, Uriah, did not go down to his house. That was David's Hail Mary pass. That was his last-ditch effort. Invite Uriah to his house, throw a feast, get him drunk, and hope that Uriah stumbles back down to his house to have relations with Bathsheba. Do you see the irony here? Uriah is more righteous, drunk, than David is sober. Such an indictment on the king of Israel the man after God's own heart. Believe it or not, things from here get progressively darker and even more evil. Verses 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be, that he may be struck down and die. Just the other night, totally unplanned, Stephanie and I, Braveheart was showing, so we were watching Braveheart, and at a certain juncture in the movie, Braveheart himself, William Wallace, joins these guys and they're battering ram and they're trying to break into this castle. It's very hazardous because there are archers on the wall of the castle that are just raining down arrows on Wallace and his compatriots, and they pour boiling tar from above, and they are taking out people right and left. That is what David is telling Joab to send Uriah into. Send Uriah by the wall so that he gets taken out. That's what he is hoping will happen. And there's another evil here. One of the most subtle evils that happens here. Happens, it's just very subtle at the end of verse 14. And he sent it. What was it? That was, the it was his death sentence. He sent Uriah's death sentence by whose hand? Uriah's hand. David was presuming. On the fact that uriah was a righteous man david was banking on the fact that uriah was so righteous that uriah would have never opened that letter to read its contents and so david sends uriah's death sentence back in his own hand that to me is incredible precious uriah unwittingly carrying his own death sentence back to the front lines. Look at verses 16 through 21. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The valiant men were gonna be up front on the city wall near the front defending the city. Verse 17, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah, the Hittite, also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger. You know, he's sending a messenger back to update David. Okay, the messenger would have no idea what was really going on. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, and so he was going back under the pretense of just giving David a quick update about the day's battle... Okay, when you have finished telling the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go? so near the wall. So do you understand what's going back? So Joab is sending this guy to go back and tell David what happens. When David hears that Joab sent all of these mighty men to the front of the wall that put them in harm's way, Joab knows that David's going to be so incensed because that was reckless and foolish. And then Joab says, but, but tell him one other thing. Okay, when David says, why did you go so near the wall? Then you are to say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then David will get it. David will know. That's why Joab did this reckless thing. He had to do this reckless thing to ensure that Uriah died. Okay, go to panel six. We're going to land the plane. 2 Samuel 11, verses 22 through 27. So, this messenger, again, he has no idea what's going on. He's just going back to give David an update on the affairs of the day's battle. So, the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, why did you do this? This was incredibly foolish. I'm going to hold you accountable. Is that what David said to the messenger to send back to Joab? No. David said, "Hmm, don't let this bother you. Don't let this displace you. For the sword, it devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. In other words, go back and tell Joab, no worries. I understand these things happen in battle. No problem. Just kind of like get the guys together and go back at it the next day. The verse The account ends in verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done, these are some of the most understated words in the Bible, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, friends, there's a lot we can learn from this. I just want to point out a few things before we're done. Number one, this should reinforce the fact of the power of indwelling sin, that it's very great, and the power of indwelling sin is powerful enough to ruin the lives of every single person in this room. The seeds of grievous sin live in all of our hearts. We inherit it from our first father, Adam. And even when we come to Christ, we still have to grapple with the power and presence of indwelling sin. And if this can happen to David, a man after God's own hearts, do you know that David is the named author of 75 Psalms? David is the author of of Psalm 40, when he writes, I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law was within my heart. David was a believer in the God of the Bible. And yet David fell headlong into this kind of sin. Friends, if it could happen to David, it can happen to me, it can happen to you. We are experts, experts experts at justifying our sin and excusing our sin and explaining away our sin. We're masters at it. Challenge for all of us, beloved, we need to be careful how we respond when we feel conviction of sin. Okay? We should be familiar to that feeling of guilt and conviction when we've said something That we shouldn't say when we gossip against someone, when we think things we shouldn't think, and we feel that that feeling of conviction. That is the Holy Spirit working on our hearts. Beloved, listen to it, be sensitive to it, allow it to lead you to Jesus for grace and forgiveness and restoration. Friends, be careful of how you explain away your sin and justify it and think I've got it under control for a season. We don't have anything under control. Second, our sin almost always has ripple effects that impact other people. On panel six, look with me again at verse 24. There's an understatement there. So to date, Bathsheba has been impacted Uriah has been killed, okay? What does verse 24 say? It says, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. In order to cover this up, not only Uriah had to die. The men that were with Uriah died as well. So it wasn't just Bathsheba. And it wasn't just Uriah, it was David's other mighty men as well. Our sin, friends, always has ripple effects. And the narrator wants us to see this as a cautionary tale. Don't justify your sin or explain it away thinking it's only impacting you. It never only impacts you it could have an effect on your grandchildren 30 years from now. This is serious business, and I am preaching to myself. What else does this text prove? We know that David ultimately repents and is restored. And what does that teach to you and me? Beloved, if David could be forgiven for this... There's no sin that we can't be forgiven for. Chris gave a very powerful illustration on Wednesday night about a doctor who had participated, the lead doctor, over hundreds of abortions. And yet this doctor, um, in one particular surgery, got a wake-up call that there's a baby in there and it shook him to his core. And if I remember Chris Wright, that ultimately brought him to Jesus Christ. There is no sin so dark that it cannot be forgiven. In light of the recent, you know, reversal of Roe v. Wade, which we praise the Lord Jesus for, there may be some people in this room that have experienced abortion in one way or another. It is very unlikely in a room this size that that is not the case, the blood of Jesus is can wash you clean. There is absolutely nothing you have done that cannot be washed clean from the blood of Jesus. Friends, that is a tremendous hope for me. It is never too late. You are never too far gone. You run to, the Jesus, to Jesus Christ and you will receive grace and mercy. And the last thing we learn The greatest Messiah, lowercase m, that the Old Testament had to offer was King David. And what this is teaching us is that we need a different kind of Savior. We need a better Savior, and we have one, and Jesus Christ. Friends, flee to him, run to him, get to him as fast as you can, and you will find grace and mercy and loving kindness in your time of need. More than anything else, this passage reminds us how much we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this passage. Again, we just don't have time to mine all the riches from it. We thank you for this great reminder that we need a much better, a much greater Savior than David. We need David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that you would restore us in Christ, that his blood and righteousness would wash us clean and make us whole. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, give us sensitive hearts. Give us hearts that are sensitive to sin. Lord, help us to quickly turn from our sin and turn to you for grace and forgiveness and mercy Oh, Holy Spirit, sensitize our hearts, Lord, that we may not um, go down this same road as David. Help us to flee to Jesus. Help us to see our great need for the Lord Jesus, his blood and righteousness. We pray in his matchless name, amen.